Do you like the work we're doing here at It's All Journalism? For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us continue the conversation about good journalism. Show your support by donating to our Patreon campaign. Go to itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page to donate. It does suck to know that there are enough stories that even I've been involved with where I just forgot when by the time we published that story. And it, it kills you when you see another brand or another company covering basically the same thing, doing the same story, and then just writing a better headline on it and thinking, man, I, just, I left so much traffic on the table because I screwed up. You know, I forgot why it was somebody cared about this. Welcome to It's All Journalism. I'm Michael O'Connell here with another podcast about digital journalism and the people who are trying to make it better. On the phone with me today is Ryan Craggs, a New York-based editor and audience development strategist. He's edited for The Huffington Post, Thrillist, and Con Nash Traveler. Welcome to the podcast, Ryan. Thank you. Nice to uh, be with you. Okay, great. Now, the reason I reached out to you is you had a, an article that you wrote for the Columbia Journalism Review this great headline, because it was about headlines, it was that stop killing your social stories with bad headlines and images. So where did that story come from? Well, the story had sort of been living inside of me for a very long time. In fact, I wrote the first iteration of it about nine months ago. But at the time, my boss did not like the idea of me publishing it anywhere. So I just sort of squatted on it for a while. And I ended up changing jobs about six weeks ago. So I decided to finally actually pitch it to Columbia Journalism Review, and I did a little bit of tinkering, added that new example of the United story that the article starts out with. And I mean, effectively, it was, it was an internal document that was you know, specific to me, but I would show it to some of my colleagues because I think a lot of them struggled with writing headlines for their stories. So they would spend, as I said in the article, you know, hours days, weeks writing an article, but then a lot of times it would fall flat because there just wasn't a good presentation of that article and the concepts driving it. And I think it's really important for people to develop that skill, you know, rather than just relying on an editor to make that stuff better. Yeah, I agree with you. Now, a couple of things that you said in there that I wanted to touch on. First, did, it, was it that your boss did not want you letting out all the, the company secrets? Is that why he sort of was reticent to have you publish it? It was exactly that, yeah. Even though this was, this is my philosophy, it was not a company philosophy. It was, I don't know, over over a course of years of the various jobs that I've had and some of my background, this was my philosophy and not necessarily like a company one. And so even at the time when I first wrote it, I didn't want it to be an internal document for the company that I was working for because, as I said, this is my philosophy. It was not a, a company philosophy. Sure. And, and there may have been stuff that, that you learned on that particular job as well as, as other jobs. And so, you know, maybe they felt that, you know, we need to be kind of protective of this. But, but you said you have a, a new job and uh, that's at uh, Con Nass Traveler. Yes, I started there at the beginning of April. Okay, cool. Let's go down that way. Let's let's talk a little bit about your, your journalist journey. How did you, you know, end up here? You know, what, what's your career been up to this point? My first exposure to journalism, I guess, in terms of actually doing it rather than, you know, reading or consuming it in any way. When I was in college, I went to Ohio State University as an undergrad, and there was a campus paper, which 
I didn't write for, I wasn't involved with, but then there was sort of a, a weekly alt campus paper that was around for a couple of years. I don't think it's around anymore, but I ended up pitching an idea to that newspaper because my senior year of college, the university had shut down the what's effectively the quad at Ohio State. Um, it's called the Oval there. Mm-hmm. So they had shut down a big section of the Oval. They had shut down the main library, and they had shut down the student union all at the same time. And I was kind of upset about that. You know, as I was an outgoing student, so it was going to affect me less. But I thought it was kind of unfair for students who had committed to go to school there that arguably three of the most – three of the four most iconic buildings – on campus, we're all going to, or structures rather, because the quad is not a building, uh, but three of the four most iconic structures on the university campus were all going to be closed at the same time, save for the football stadium, yeah. which God forbid they would ever close the football stadium. <laughs> so I was upset about that, and it was sort of like an activism journalism piece. But beyond that, I had no plans to get into journalism until I was working as a, an English teacher in Spain the year after I graduated. And just looking for some other projects to fill my time because I enjoyed writing. But as I said, I wasn't interested particularly in journalism, but I started freelancing for this English language magazine when I was living in Spain. And I realized how much I enjoyed the interaction with other people and dealing with more contemporary contemporary issues because initially I was planning to get a PhD in Spanish. So I sort of backed my way into writing for a magazine. And, you know, I used to really enjoy the now defunct channel, uh, Current TV, where they produce a whole bunch of user-generated videos about various topics around the world. And I thought it was really interesting stuff. So I decided to go to grad school for journalism, particularly for broadcast production, because I figured it was one of those things where nobody would ever give me on-the-job training to use a you know, $10,000 camera and a $5,000 editing system. So I ended up going to uh, the Medill School at Northwestern where, uh, in fact, one of my good friends and former classmates was a guy that told me he used to work with you in some form. Um, his name was Aaron Stern. He used to work at the newspaper oh, yeah. Potomac. Yes. So Yes, so, I, know, anyway, I know Aaron. Yeah. So now were you initially doing travel uh, journalism? Is that kind of where you started? Yeah, the magazine that I was writing for, it was writing travel stuff. But after, after I first finished school, then I was, I mean, you know, looking for work and I ended up getting hired by Forbes Travel Guide in 2011, so I worked there for about nine months, you know, helping them launch their new website because they were transitioning from being a book company to being a website, so they prior had no website. And then during that process, then I ended up being hired by the Huffington Post, and I worked there for just a little under two and a half years, so I was editing the international news section there. And, you know, it's funny. I think a lot of what's in this article that I wrote for CJR, I mean, it was inspired, and I guess partially I can give credit to my job at the Huffington Post. A lot of my job there was working with wire services, so AP, Reuters, AFP, and figuring out what headlines would be appealing to a broader interest audience in a given day. So I used to start work every day at 7.30 in the morning, And my job was basically to pull out the five to seven most interesting things going on in the world that I thought would appeal to a broader American audience. So I would pull those out, and we would have the same copy as everybody else, but it was on me to figure out, all right, how do I make this 
more interesting, I guess, to a, a domestic audience. You know, how do I present these things in such a way that I can get people to engage with bigger topics that I think by and large, you know, most people aren't going to be talking, talking about at the breakfast table or on their way, you know, commuting to work. So I was rewriting headlines and every day I would read probably about 150 headlines between 7.30 and 8 o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. And then just trying to, as I said, cherry pick from that stuff. So I was in that job for just, as I said, a shade under two and a half years. And then I got hired by Thrillist. I got hired to be the travel editor there. And I was a travel editor there for about a year. And then they realized that they needed to put a more concerted effort into news because it was sort of a slapdash thing and across the various different verticals there. So they created a news team. I was in charge of news there for the rest of my time working for the company, which ended at the end of March of this year. So just a shade under two years doing that job. Okay. So, so you had a really, really kind of interesting journey in, in the digital space. As our industry is kind of like shifted from, from being print focused, from being, you know, broadcast focused into this digital space, you know, it's like each time, you know, each section or each part of, of the way we construct stories and the way we, we market stories and push, push stories out, there's always this, this kind of learning curve on things. And I think, I think we're still in the learning, you know, early stages of the learning curve, um, headline writing good headline writing. A lot of it, I think, because of this idea that, you know, we, we fall back on this old thing. Well, the headlines has to be newsy. We don't want it to be so clickbaity. We don't want it to be like just a BuzzFeed uh, type thing. But but actually, there is a skill to it. And, you know, it's sort of a shift in philosophy of, you know, you can you can write, I don't want to say clickbaity, but you can write a really strong social headline for a story that's, that is kind of deep and, and kind of really journalistic. And it doesn't have to be stupid. It doesn't. It, you don't have to trick your the people who are reading, but it does take a, a degree of skill. Is that what you've sort of found? Yeah, for sure. You know, a lot of what my previous role was editing news for Thrillist. It was you know covering lighter topics. It was more you know what was considered lifestyle stuff as opposed to working in hard news. It's just a matter of figuring out what what is it that people are going to be talking about. You know, like how do you think that somebody would talk about this at a party. That's the way that I always presented this concept to the people that reported to me was, you know, you could write the greatest story in the world, but if you put a bad headline on it and you don't have an engaging image on it, nobody's ever going to read that thing. And then nobody's going to share it either. So it's really important to understand how you present it to the outside world. And, you know, in some ways it might sound a little insulting, but I said, just treat the people in your audience like they're kind of dumb on the outside because, as we know, people just skim stuff. They don't necessarily read the article. You know, they're not going to read every single thing that comes through their feed or every single article that you send to them in an email. So treat them like they're kind of dumb and don't really know what this topic is on the outside and then treat them like they're smart if they're smart enough to have clicked in because at that point, you know, you want to give them a good experience. You want them to feel like they came what they were looking for. And so I don't think it's disingenuous to, to figure out what buttons to push with people. And as you said, without getting completely baity on stuff where, you know, you're throwing one thing out on the presentation side, but then you're not actually delivering on the inside. That's just a terrible experience. And I mean, I don't think anybody who's an informed reader in any way enjoys that experience because you just feel like, I don't know, like you're left hanging there without the thing that you came looking for and you're never going to go back to that site. So you don't have to play that way. I also think, you know, seeing the developments on Facebook, because in particular that drives traffic for every site now, Facebook 
doesn't reward that kind of activity on a publisher side. You know, you may get some spike in it, but eventually you're going to get punished by Facebook. And I think at this point, everyone's trying to figure out how they get rewarded, not punished by Facebook. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's something that, that you know, my, in my day job, that is sort of a philosophy that we've kind of developed, this idea of being more proactive about, you know, writing he headlines that people want to click. The idea being, you know, you've, you put all this time, this effort into this story, you want people to read it. But, you know, the, the key is, is, you know, you have to have good content that you're pushing out because you don't want to you don't want to trick people. You don't want to give them something stupid that they're not going to want or, or they're not going to feel rewarded on. Or, you're, you know, the, the baseline of headline writing philosophy here is, you know, don't lie to the reader. You know, there has to be some grain of truth in, in the headline. And, and so it's a matter of identifying what the value that they're going to get out of it is. And then sort of, you know, as you said, sort of push those buttons and, and those keys. Now, I'm glad that you mentioned Facebook because that's one of the things I really liked about the article. It was, it was, I think it's the first one I've seen where they actually, where you actually talk about, you know, headline writing on one hand to get, get people to click on your story, but then also how to get people to share. You know, what's the, what's the relationship between writing a, a clickable headline and, and one that, that can be shareable? So I think ultimately they're is what I refer to as a scale, you know, and it's a matter of balancing these things. So I think the, the big things to look at when you're posting something on Facebook, there's the reach that a post will get on Facebook, and then there's the actual clicks. And I think most organizations will look at both of those things, but ultimately, you know, media outlets are selling their ads against how many people are reading a story, how many people are clicking on that thing, not how many people just see it, because that's not a number that I think advertisers are willing to work with. And, it, and in some ways, you know, even if you are doing good journalistic work, you have to be concerned with ad sales because you have to, you're a business, you know, you have to stay open. Something has to pay for the light bill. And to that end, there are two kinds of stories. There are ones that are simply share stories, and there are ones that are click stories. And sometimes they do overlap. You know, they're not mutually exclusive. But I think it's better to recognize when you have a share story that isn't really a click story. And I don't think you really gain a lot from trying to game that system. So so I'll give you an example of one that I had at Thrillist. It's a story that has been re-promoted probably ad nauseum at this point on their Facebook page. But it was about how Krispy Kreme was coming out with a Nutella donut, right? And that's basically the headline right there. I don't remember what it is off the top of my head because the story is about a year old. I'm clicking but, on that story immediately. <laughs> well, see, but here's the thing. If, if it says Krispy Kreme is coming out with a Nutella donut, you don't necessarily have to click because what you're saying there is everything right in the headline, right? And I think the way that people browse the Internet, you know, you'll still get clicks as there will be enough people that want more information. But by and large, that story is just people being excited about that product and then sharing and then tagging their friends and saying, look, we already love Krispy Kreme. Here's, here's the donut that's coming out. We love Nutella, too. I can't wait to have this. And you realize, you know, you could try to game the system to try and up the clicks. But I think ultimately that one is just simply a headline and not necessarily, you know, a thing that people are going to have to dive into. So I think you gain more from playing it straight in that instance where you're presenting all the information on the outside, where it, where it ultimately is just a headline. And sure, you need to have the backbone story on the inside if people do care to click, because ultimately you do want them to click if they are interested and you want them to get the information thereafter. But there's a game that you the balance there, because I, I, I think that 
going for the most reach that you can get with a story that you think is mostly just a headline is important because in many ways it's a rising tide on Facebook. You know, the, the greater reach that a story gets, the more people that see one individual story, the more exposure your brand gets and the more that that helps raise up the other posts that are surrounding that one on Facebook. So, you know, you could try to play a game where you get, you hide things a little bit from the reader. You know, you're like, you'll never guess what Krispy Kreme's next donut creation is, right? But the difference in writing that headline is you're assuming that everyone is excited about Krispy Kreme. I think you're lowering the ceiling and lowering the audience on that story because now you're only looking at hardcore Krispy Kreme people. Whereas if you say Krispy Kreme is coming out with a Nutella donut, you have people that like Krispy Kreme, people that like donuts, people that like Nutella. You know, it's just like I think it expands the audience and raises the ceiling on the number of people who will care about that thing. Whereas trying to game it so that people click more, I think you're lowering the ceiling. So, you know, like I think it would be more important to have a million people see a story and then maybe get 10,000 to click as opposed to 100,000 people to read the story and then get maybe 10,000 to click still. You know, you have a better percentage of people clicking but you ultimately end up with sort of the same amount of clicks and you just lose people who would have seen it in the first place. Yeah, that's really smart. And because what you're doing is you're really, you're in the social sphere, you're in a, a social platform and you're actually communicating in the language and sort of acting in the way you should be in a social platform as opposed to sort of like broadcasting at somebody. Here's something that you recognize as shareable and the win, you know, some people will look at it, well, the only win you're going to get is, is a click. If you're a publication, you know, you're, you're kind of in it for the long, the long haul. Like you're saying, there's stuff to be gained by, having, by increasing your reach. You know, I, I've seen this on stories that we do on our, our site where, you know, the, if we're able to get a, sto a story out there that gets a lot of reach, we'll see a number of people, you know, new people who've never seen our website, never seen our stories before, they'll like it or they'll like our site. And then so suddenly they're, they're starting to receive more of our different stories. So they may not be clicking on that story that first got them interested or made them aware of who we are. But down the road, you know, they're going to see our other stories and there may be things in there that they're going to like and they're, they're going to share and they're going to click on. It's playing the long game. I, I think so. You know, you're building, you're building your brand equity in that way, and you're exposing who you are and what you do to more people. So there's a bit of a logical fallacy with, for many outlets where they try to be everything to everyone. You know, I think that that is a struggle that a lot of media outlets have had because they want to continue growing. So, you know, there's room for an infinite number of things on the Internet. There's no limit on space, really. But, you know... Once you expose what you are as a brand and what you do, what you cover, then somebody sees that story and they might think, hey, you know, I should follow this place. I should see what they are up to on a fairly regular basis. And, you know, when you're scrolling through a Facebook feed, you know, you're going to see, depending on who you're friends with and what things you like on Facebook, you know, you're going to be inundated with friends' photos from their vacations and, you know, people talking about whatever is going on politically right now and whatever other brands you may like. So you're scrolling through that feed, and there's a limited amount of time you have to capture somebody's attention. So if you start trying to gain somebody's attention, you know, you just don't have that much time. And I think people tend to tune out as soon as you start playing more games with them. It worked for a little while, but knowing that those sorts of tricks have been punished in the past, 
you've got to try to grab somebody and you have to give them those, those reference anchors. You know, that's a big thing that I talked about in there too, especially with that, uh, that Netflix Instagram job, you see Netflix and Instagram and right there, you know that those are two topics that people love to talk about on social media. So you've immediately got more interest in those things because they have direct reference points that they can grasp onto without having to like already have delved completely into your brand and what it is you cover. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just to sort of give a, a point of references to, to the Netflix thing, the story was that uh, you'd be able to take uh, photo. It's the one where you take photographs and earn, you know, $2,000 a week. You compared different headlines that were more successful in sharing and, and, and just sort of getting that get attention from people just by just, you know, changing the emphasis on different things. But using Netflix as the the key link that people see, oh yeah, I'm interested in Netflix. Oh yeah, I'm interested in earning money. And, and just sort of identifying those those wants and needs of, of potential readers and sort of taking advantage of that. I mean, it seems so basic, but it, you know, it's something that a lot of people don't do. They're, they sort of just, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I want to say they're lazy, but they, they kind of just sort of, you know, well, here's what the story is. And they don't really give a, give a thought in, into how to make that story interesting by identifying what, you, what your audience is actually interested in. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of it, there's a whole bunch of different things that interplay here. You know, I think Thrillist, by and large, has done a good job of using data. I think one of the big differences, too, is digital-first companies. I also work for the Huffington Post, as I said, for almost two and a half years. Mm-hmm. Digital-first companies, you know, a lot of their decisions, I think, are not necessarily dictated by, but really informed by data. And so once you know what your demographics look like through, you know, the tracking of your audience, that you can make better informed decisions. So, you know, one of the things I was talking about, just understanding, it's like, if you know that the average American is making, you know, the the salary is something like $53,000 a year for household income, well, then as I laid out there just on the math, that's almost $1,000 a week. Well, if there's a job where somebody's making $2,000 a week, that's twice as much money as I make at my job right now. So I'm going to be interested in hearing about that thing. And we already know that people are interested in Netflix. You know, you see that it was something like uh, four times as many subscribers to Netflix streaming in the U.S. I saw the other day compared to, uh, to Comcast subscribers. So knowing that, it's just a topic that people are interested in. They want to know, you know, what's new on Netflix this month and so on and so forth. So when you have a topic like this of a thing that you know that people already like and it's making more money than most people make, then all of a sudden you've just got an easy way to grab people's attention and you don't have to play any games. It's very straightforward. You know, that's kind of, this story of course was a perfect storm, I think in many ways because of all of the things it had going for it. It had this great reference point. You know, if it was, not to denigrate Hulu, but if it was Hulu instead of Netflix, I don't think it's as appealing. So, you know, it's understanding that you have this, like, slam dunk of a headline and story available to you. Well, let's make sure we're throwing that slam dunk down as hard as we can and not just, you know, going for the layup. Yeah. And the other thing about the story you wrote is the importance of it's not just a headline. It's it's the photo you choose. It's the um, the status that you put above it. And working together and how those sort of function in the Facebook ecosphere. Um, so what are your thoughts about that? I think ultimately, as I alluded to, one of my former coworkers, his name is Bison, you know, probably two years ago at least, he said, Facebook is a place that people go to talk. And, you know, I, I referenced that in the article. 
And I believe that to be entirely true. You know, people, some people, sure, we have to work on Facebook, like I do, you know, to a certain extent. That's where people look at the things that I'm writing and editing. But by and large, people are going on Facebook because they just are looking to kill some time and they want to be entertained and they want to see what's going on in the world and what their friends are talking about. So if you know that, why wouldn't you be conversational? You know, like you don't need to go with this stilted idea of, you know, we're, we're in an ivory tower as journalists and telling people what's good in the world. You want to talk to your audience, you know, with this kind of content, like they're your friend. And you need to act like you're their friend. So in that way, while a lot of us will have a broad base of friends, you want to be an interesting friend. You want to tell the interesting story. So just think of it in those terms, as I said previously. How would you tell somebody about this at a party, somebody that you didn't know? You know, like you have to figure you want to tell an interesting story. You don't want to hold it up by having a good story and then not presenting it in a good way. You don't want to say to somebody, well, let me tell you an interesting story. You just kind of want to cut to the quick and say, this is what this interesting thing is. So I think in many ways, you know, you can write a good headline, but the image needs to interplay with that too. It needs to, it needs to have the same tone. It needs to try to evoke a, some sort of feeling in people. So the big thing in that Netflix Instagram story that we're referencing is it elicits this idea that people want to tap into their wanderlust. You know, they want to be able to travel the world. They want to see interesting places. So, you know, when Business Insider originally published the story, they had a photo of Reed Hastings, the CEO of, of Netflix. If you put Reed Hastings in a police lineup, I don't think that 90% of America could choose that guy. You know, he just kind of looks like my dad. And he's just a 55-year-old white guy with a goatee. Well, that's not a particularly engaging photo in any way. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't mesh up with the idea of why the story matters. Like, do I care about what Netflix does as a, corporate, as a corporation? Probably not. You know, unless they're, unless they're changing user habits in some way. So, for example, like two years ago, they increased their prices on some of their streaming packages. Okay, well, now we're talking about a thing that affects the user. And then, yeah, okay, we can talk about the, the corporate side of things. But otherwise, it's not affecting who I am, what I care about. So that's where I think Business Insider kind of failed on that photo choice. We're sure, like Reed Hastings might sell covers of a tech magazine or a business magazine because it's such a successful business. But ultimately, when we're talking about this story, we're talking about people wanting to travel. So let's show a photo of someone traveling. And, you know, while I'm talking about Reed Hastings in particular not being interesting, there's plenty of evidence out there that faces click better on Facebook. You know, people are interested in interesting photos, and they want to see what other people do and what other people think. So in this one, it's all of those things coming together. And I think, you know, in this story in particular, it plays well with the headline. So it's all, it's all like a package. And as I said, you know, in there, with the status, too, it's another tool. So sometimes you can't fit all of the information into the headline. And if you can't, the status is a great place to, to give more context. Sometimes it can just be a way to sum things up. Sometimes it can be a way to add more context. It's just a matter of can you get it all in the headline? Okay, great. Well, then let's give some other nugget of information in the status. And it's just thinking about all the tools that you have available to you in a given story, in a given space, to maximize what you can give the reader and to play all of those things together. And I think... As I said, this story ends up being a perfect storm of all of those things, but 
you know, it makes for a good case study to understand what those tools are and how you can best use them. Yeah, and in your article, when you were talking about the um, the status, I mean, that's a place where, like somebody who is sharing something on Facebook, that's a place for you to, like, you know, wow, this is really something that's going to affect you. Or, you know, oh, these people are going to uh, be in trouble because of this. It's a way to sort of maybe give another little nuance to whatever the, the image and the headline and the, and the, the summary that are already there. Uh, maybe even a, a slightly different tone. Yeah, you know, I think that that's, again, another place where it depends on what your audience is, of course. But it's another opportunity for you to be conversational with your audience because, you know, the headline, you can see a million different stories that somebody would post to their own Facebook feed that could be drawn from different sources, but they're going to probably put a comment in the status in some way. And that's a way to differentiate, you know, who you are and what your voice is as a company where you get to editorialize even a little bit. You know, I think not every brand can get away with the editorializing in the headline, but you can get away with more editorializing in a status because again, it's somebody is writing that somebody is talking about that. It isn't this removed third person that I think so much, so many of us, have been taught to use in a traditional journalistic sense. So that affords more of an opportunity. Again, that doesn't always show up when somebody shares your article because then they get to write their status on your article. But I do think it's an opportunity to talk to people. And as you know, I go back to ad nauseum, it's a place where people want to talk. So if you give them something to talk about, then you're probably already ahead of the game compared to most people. So is there something with, with headline writing that really that you see people do, uh, you know, typically that, that kind of annoys you? I think it's – there have been enough stories that I've seen and I've worked with too where you kind of lose sight of why you started writing the story in the first place. <laughs> you know, I, th I mean, I think you end up having to do a gut check and ask yourself, why, why did we write this story? And if you feel like you've lost momentum – then you're probably not writing a winning story in the first place. But there are enough times where you've written a good story and you think about why you've written that story and you just don't translate it into the words on the headline. And I think it's really important. You know, you're not going to be able to sum up every single story in a headline, but it, it does suck to know that there are enough stories that even I've been involved with where I just forgot when by the time we publish that story and it, it kills you when you see another brand or another company covering basically the same thing and doing the same story and then just writing a better headline on it and thinking, man, I just, I left so much traffic on the table because I screwed up. You know, I forgot why it was somebody cared about this. And I think that's the biggest thing is just not thinking enough about why an audience cares. I think that's the most important lesson to be taken away from all this head, headline writing talk is you have to always think about, why does your audience care? And I think there's too many times when people just don't do that. Yeah, yeah. And I, I like what you said about, you know, taking sort of a gut check on your story. You know, when you get all these stories, especially if you're an editor and you've got all these stories coming across your desk, you, you hope that they're, they're coming in at a certain standard and that they, ha they, they mean something. But, you know, I think we've all had that experience where something comes to us and we're kind of like, well, what is this story about? Who is this for? Why did we write it? And, you know, then it's, you know, it's putting, putting a bow on a pig. It's, it's like the, there's only so much a headline is going to do if, if the story itself doesn't, doesn't have something of interest to the reader. And so it's almost like, you know, writing a good headline begins at the story 
<laughs> the story assignment point, you know, identifying a need in your audience, uh, writing something that, that that's going to, you know, address that need and then, you know, pushing it down the pipe and, and putting it in the best uh, package that you can. Yeah. You know, can you tell me if you're, if you're a writer and you're pitching a story to me, it's, it's how story pitches work with newspapers, magazines, whatever it is. If you can tell me in one or two sentences why somebody cares about this, okay, now we have a place to go. If you can't do, if you can't tell me why this matters in one or two sentences, why are we doing it? You know, you, you may not be able to translate all of that into a headline, but ultimately we know that people are tuning out a lot of stuff around them because there's so much noise on the internet. Okay, well, if you can sum this up quickly for me, then we probably have something to work from and we know why people are going to be interested. And the more we complicate things, the worse off we're probably going to be. Yeah, definitely. Ryan, this has been a great conversation. Um, a little nerdy from the headline perspective, but you know, a lot of us live this day in and day out, and it is really kind of important. At least we tell ourselves it's important. But I, th I think it is. You know, if we're spending all this time writing stuff, I mean, it's important that you know that the people recognize or are able to access what we're doing and see that it's something of value, and, and it's part of our, you know, the whole process of of rolling out the news here. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Next time on It's All Journalism. So I think that fake news is an issue. I think that researchers are starting to realize now just how wide of an impact it had in the 2016 election. But when I think of fake news, I think of news that is completely false. I mean, a headline that I you know, talk about sometimes is that I saw right before the election was, you know, Hillary Clinton and Yoko Ono admit to 1970s affair. You know, I mean, it's completely, completely bonkers. And most people can see that for what it is. But for those people who can't, you know, I think that that's an issue certainly of media literacy. And um, and I think just because it's online doesn't mean it's true, obviously. Join us for the next episode of It's All Journalism when we talk to Margot Suska, program director of the Masters in Journalism and Digital Storytelling program at American University. We talk about fake news, political coverage, and the state of journalism education. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about digital media. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Podcast One. This week's episode was edited by Nicola Grisco. Amber Healy provided our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music, and I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Hey, I've written a book. You can order copies of Turn Up the Volume, a Down and Dirty Guide to Podcasting on our website. Visit itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page. Isn't it time you started your podcast? Do you like the work that we're doing here at It's All Journalism? Now you can show your support on our Patreon page. Follow the link at the top of our website and donate. For as little as a dollar a month, you can access exclusive content and receive updates about upcoming episodes. Donate a little bit more and we'll send you a cool swag like our It's All Journalism mug or a signed copy of my podcasting book. There are even opportunities for you to submit ideas for future shows or even appear on an episode. Go to itsalljournalism.com and click on the Patreon link to find out more. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening. The Target USA podcast with your host, J.J. Green. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. That could touch the whole of the United States. ISIS. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to see an attack. 
This is J.J. Green. Join me each week for the latest on U.S. and international security on Target USA. The Target USA podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC. The Capital Culture Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Nania and Jason Fraley. We have a new podcast called Capital Culture. Each week we go in-depth with chefs like Marcus Samuelson and writers like Bon Appetit's Adam Rappaport. We'll also talk plays with Kathleen Turner, movies with Emma Stone, and music with Smokey Robinson. Not to mention some of your favorite WTOP voices. The Capital Culture Podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC.